chapter 3, we're going to look at the first five verses. And if uh, you need a pew Bible, that would be on page 223. 223. Uh, Ruth 3, 1-5. Folks, we're getting ready to go on a wild journey here. This is a really tough passage. And even I, as I stand up here, am wondering, what in the world am I going to tell you guys about this passage? This is an incredibly strange passage. But we will start with this question. What would you do to care for a loved one in need? What would you do? Might you drive them around while they were sick? Might you spend the day in the hospital with them, advocating, helping, comforting? Would you clean up after one of those little boogers, after they threw up in the middle of the night all over themselves and everything? Um, would you write a check to cover mistakes or listen with great care about loved ones, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Um, one of the one-hit wonders of the 80s by the proclaimers, they proclaimed that they would walk 500 miles and that they would walk 500 more just to be the man who walks 1,000 miles to fall down at your door. For those we love and deeply love, there's not much we wouldn't do for them, is there? Today's text, I believe, exemplifies this kind of love and care Yet, it's probably one of the most debated and controversial sections in all the Scripture. So let's turn our attention to the text this morning, and we'll read through it, and then we'll begin to dig through the passage. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz not our relative? with whose young women you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say... I will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, mysterious as it is. And Lord, help us to understand you better in this passage. Help us to understand our hearts better. That we may walk more wisely in this world in light of your grace and mercy to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this is actually, in the, in the text that we have been studying in Ruth, this is the beginning of the third major section of the book. And it, it, all, it, it serves as a very intensifying point here in this section, is actually all of chapter 3, that leads toward the resolution that we see in chapter 4. And so today, as, as we begin to dig through this passage, I want us to consider you know, three things. First of all, hope in the provision provided. I think that's what Naomi's doing here. She's hoping in the provision provided that she sees. Okay? Secondly, there's a risky plan involved. 
as we read that passage, um, you know, we'll un- un- unpack that a little bit, but it- it's a risky plan. You can kind of see it there. And then finally, we'll look at some truth for us. Uh, just how do we make sense of this for us as we consider applications for our lives today? And so let's consider hope in the provision provided. Now, when Naomi and Ruth arrived in Bethlehem, if you remember, um, it was the beginning of barley harvest. Barley was harvested from late March through late April, and wheat from late April to late May, even maybe even into June. Uh, so, given so that so Ruth, who was given permission to glean in the field of Boaz all this time, she stayed very close to the servant girls, as you heard in the passage we read. She was close to them. She stayed with them. Um, and she did that because her mother-in-law instructed her to do that so that she wouldn't be assaulted. You'll see some of that unfold as we go here. So you can imagine that between the lines that were written in 2.23 uh, and 3.1, uh, as those lines are written, you can see that Ruth is rejoicing in heart with Naomi, and, and they're growing in this relationship together. That's what the text says in verse 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. Ruth is working. They're, they're, she's coming home. They're growing in relationship. They're growing deeper in spirit together. And so while Naomi at this time did not have Psalm 31 nor Titus 2, it appears to me, and it appears really kind of behind the scenes of the text, that, um, that she lived in light of Psalm 31 and Titus 2. So if you would, flip over to Titus 2 for me. Uh, we'll be in, in uh, chapter 3, I mean, looking at verses 3 and 5 of, cha- of Titus 2. Look at that text with me. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, Or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. Now, I'm going to tell you, as I look at the text, the text doesn't really give us hardly any information about Elimelech the husband of Naomi who died. But what we do see is this love that that Ruth has for Naomi. And we also see this this bigger picture of Naomi, even in the end, you know, as, as she and her husband left. And I really do believe because of the text, it's in rebellion against against the Lord, wanting to take on their own responsibilities and do their own things and and take um, self perseverance into their own hands. That 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 the 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 heart of Naomi has always been drawn back to the Lord in this text. I mean, it just over and over again, we see her heart coming back. I don't know whether she lived this way before Ruth, but it appears that way. And there's all sorts of signs and things that you see through the text. And so I say that to say that it's important that we, as men and women, really understand the impact that we have on others really understand when we dive into the Word, when we live out the kingdom values, 
that we have an impact. I mean, just this for ladies alone. Ladies, if you were to take this this week and meditate on Titus 2 and compare it to your life and say, is this how I'm living before, you know, um, um, my husband, uh, my friends, my children? Um, I'm not trying to lay a new law on you. I am trying to get you to see what are the kingdom values and how we're you to live. When we come into this place each week, we confess our sins. We're going to sin. We're going to fail. We're going to step into those things. And that may be what we see here with Naomi in this passage. I don't know. We're going to look at that a little bit. But with every appearance, uh, it just seems that these, these were the ways that Naomi was living. And, and how she lived before Ruth. And, and Ruth, you know, she's just clinging to her. She's holding on to her. She loves her mother-in-law as well. So just think of that increasing love that must have been present. Day by day, they worked, they lived, they were thankful to God for all the provision that He had given them in the harvest. And yet, that's the issue, isn't it? And that's the issue in the passage. The harvest is going to be over soon. It's going to end. And so something's on Naomi's mind. It's, it's actually been on Naomi's mind since the first time that Ruth walked in the door with the big bag uh, uh, of grain. When the harvest was over, what was going to happen? Now I want to tell you something. It doesn't appear here that there's, there's any indication whatsoever that she's concerned about God's care for them. He's been faithful so far. But it is evident that she's concerned for her daughter-in-law. Now, I want you to think about it. We don't know the ages of these ladies, but, but you know, Ruth, it appears, is very young. Don't know how young, but she's young. And so she's caring for Naomi. And so Naomi has seen her go out into these fields and glean, and, and maybe she's wondering, what will she do next? What will she have to do next? You know, she's been caring for me. I mean, do you see the, 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 the conundrum here? I want to provide for her. I'm concerned for her. Look at verse 1 again. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well for you? Out of a deep love, she desired Ruth to be married. And and that's the point here. She desired Ruth to be married. Naomi wanted rest for her. And this implies the security and the benefits found in marriage by a woman in the ancient Near East. And so the next thing that we see here is obviously what's in front of Naomi is that she sees that the provision of God is right before them. The tangible hope before her eyes For this to happen was the man, the man Boaz. He had not stopped showing kindness to Ruth. Um, And and, in the text, it's evident even Naomi senses it as she's wrestling through what Ruth tells her about that first day, especially in the field. And you can imagine this is weeks later, maybe a month or so later. The harvest is getting ready to end. And the whole time, this kindness has continued to be there. And it's not a normal kindness. There's something more here. Something more personal than that. You can almost hear the Disney princess music playing in the background. 
But time is running out. Might Boaz grow in distance from Ruth with the harvest now coming to an end? Might this be the time to act, to move on behalf of Ruth, her daughter-in-law? I mean, you know, the, the, the parents of the children of, in that day established, you know, marriages for their children. We think that's the craziest thing in the world. But, but I want you to think about this instead. You know that child that just a couple years ago was, couldn't find their shoes? You know that child that can't change oil in the car? That child that is struggling to, to, to figure out the directions to get to Dallas? They come to you and say, this guy's him. This is him. Can you imagine? Think about it. So here, uh, Naomi is working in her mind a plan. And more than this, what's interesting in the text that we see is that as she has stated several times, Boaz was a close relative, one of their redeemers. Though the description, uh, uh, I should say through the description of the law of redemption, it, it kind of moves our passage then to center stage about this whole kinsman redeemer. Richard Pratt notes that according to his provision, it was the right and obligation of the nearest living male blood relative to defend his family's name and to preserve its possessions. This took several forms. First of all, avenging the death of a family member. Uh, buying back family property that had been sold to pay debt. Uh, buying back the nearest relative who had sold himself into slavery to pay a debt. And or finally marrying the widow of a deceased relative. Now these laws applied to, a fam to family relatives according to the order specified in Leviticus 25.49. First the paternal uncle and then his son and then other relatives. So there's an order to which this would take place. This will come into play uh, next week as we finish chapter, as we look through chapter, finish chapter three. Um, these rights and obligations apparently could be renounced or declined without much blame if there were others who were willing to take on the responsibility. And so in Naomi's mind, understand what's going on here. The very fact that Boaz has not stopped showing kindness led Naomi to view this series of events as evidence of the kindness, the hassid of the Lord. However, Boaz had not taken the initiative in establishing a relationship with Ruth as I believe maybe Naomi had hoped, she would, had hoped he would. Perhaps we don't know. There's all sorts of things here we don't know behind the scenes. It's amazing. Um, perhaps he was being sensitive toward her as a widow. Uh, we'll get to that in terms of the dress here in just a few minutes, how she's dressed um, and how she cleans up or her mother-in-law instructs her to do that. But, but here, maybe uh, she had not taken off the clothes of mourning. And so maybe he's just being sensitive until she was emotionally ready. Uh, maybe he thought he was too old for her. You know, he is an older man. He calls her daughter in the next section of the passage. Maybe he thinks he's too old for her. Uh, maybe he's just one of those really slow men. He's a slow guy. He's just taking his time. 
Whatever the case may be, he's not making any moves. And so Naomi believes it's time to make a move. So the question is, is Naomi taking on that family sin of self-reliance once again? Is she? We've got to take care of this. We've got to take care of this business. We've got to do it. Is she running ahead of God? Is she taking matters into her own, own hands to do the things the way she thinks is right? Or is she doing what she thinks is right before her in light of, love's God, of God's loving kindness opening the doors for this provision? Do you see the conundrum? Let's take a look at her initiative as she lays out this risky plan. Let's look at this risky plan just for a moment. In every way imaginable, the plan of Ruth that Naomi lays out for Ruth, it's risky, it's risque, and perhaps reckless as we read it. I want us to look again at this section in, in verse starting in verse 3. And we're going to walk through it. I'm going to talk about a couple things as we unfold it here. First of all, notice in verse 3, she told Ruth, Naomi tells Ruth, wash therefore and anoint yourself. So get cleaned up. Put on some perfume. You know, that good stuff that we would wear. So that's, the, you know, that's, what's going, that's what she tells her. Get cleaned up. Get on some perfume, that, that really good stuff, so that he knows you, you smell good, okay? Now, it could be, you know, that Middle Eastern thing, they don't wear deodorant, that type of thing. I don't know, but, it, and there is some, you know, there are some other things behind this language here, which we'll get to in a moment, but that's what she says. The next thing she says is this, put on your cloak. So it's, it's almost like this is how maybe some of us would read this, is, you know, you need to get prettied up, Ruth, and get out there and get your man here. But, but that's how some people read it, but I don't think that's the case. It, it, it would be dark. It's midnight. I mean, you know, I was telling you about being out in the field there in Arkansas a couple weeks ago. Uh, someone walked toward me. You know, I was by the fire, and I'd walked out, and I was looking at the stars, and someone walked toward me, and I had no idea who it was. I mean, for all I know, it was Jethro, uh, coming to slit my throat and drag me off into the woods from Arkansas. You know, I don't know. There could have been banjos playing. But, but it was my son, okay? And I couldn't see him. From, from me to that mic, I couldn't tell who it was. So do you get the picture here? I mean, it's, it's not like she's really telling her to put on this beautiful, gorgeous dress to go out and get a man after she's bathed to put on perfume. That's not the point. What might be more the point, and is more plausible by all the, most of the commentators, I'd say a great majority, is the idea that Ruth had been dressed in garments of mourning. And she was a grieving widow to this point. And perhaps the reason Boaz had kept his distance at this time is out of respect for her grief. So, you have to think of it this way. By washing and putting on perfume in her cloak, Naomi was having her dress not for seduction so much, but simply as a sign to Boaz that her mourning time was over. And if he's interested at all, he needed to know that there was no need to keep the distance any longer, if that were the case. 
So the next thing Naomi says in the passage is go down to the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor was not normally a place for women, though as Hosea would later point out, it could be a place of harlotry during um, harvest festivals. It happened. So, with that in mind, let's go to the next line. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. That just sounds all kinds of trouble there, doesn't it? He's good. He's had some drinks. Then make your move. You see what I'm saying? But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. There is not a mother and father in this place that is going, oh, no. Oh, no, do not do that. Naomi, this is not a good and safe plan for your daughter-in-law. Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? What are you thinking? Don't you see the moral danger you're putting this young woman in? It raises all sorts of, of, of morally intriguing questions for more modern readers. And no matter how you look at it, no matter how you parse these words, these seem to us to be distressing instructions. But there is actually more that we don't see in the English translation. I mean, in, in our English translations. Uh, throughout these instructions, there are sexual double entendres. Virtually every word in verse 4 is capable of meaning more than one, has a capable meaning of more than one sense, and it's sexual in nature. And so we're left with, what is this about? What is this about? For example, when it says, uncover his feet, it can mean the genitals in Hebrew. It's very interesting. And so we have to ask, step back and ask ourselves some questions. What is the purpose of this? What is this driving us to? Do you think that Naomi really wanted Ruth to seduce Boaz? Um, let's think about it this way. Ruth is a Moabite, right? In Numbers 25, Moabite women led the Israelite men into sexual immorality and idolatry. Um, yet, even more so, you may remember that the origins of Moab were an act of drunken incest between Lot and his daughter in Genesis 19. Is this Naomi having a weak moment? Like maybe she hasn't quite left the Moabite world that she lived in all those years? Is it? Or is it maybe she knows Ruth is a Moabitess, and so she's trying to open up her inner Moabitess here? Maybe it wouldn't go that far. Maybe it is something else. Uh, twice, back in chapter 2, verse 9, and, the, and, and one of those times from the lips of Boaz, and one of them from the voice of Naomi, we hear the potential for Ruth to be assaulted by the young men who are working in the harvest field. So perhaps instead, she is yet now suddenly driven by impatience with God's timing, and she wants to throw caution into the wind. So maybe it's not the seduction in it. Maybe it's just, okay, I'm impatient here. We've got to move this thing along, and this is the only thing I can figure out. 
sounds like something from the A-team, you know, something just outlandish, some crazy scheme and plan. It is interesting that we do hear this, this same Naomi who was concerned with the assault of, of with, with assault, sending her young, single, vulnerable daughter-in-law down onto the threshing floor to spend a night alone with Boaz. It's a little strange. Another thing that we could look at, possibly, is uh, there could be some sort of courtship marriage customs or even a nuance that, that, that we don't understand in this ancient agrarian culture that we're different from those today. And, you know, maybe we just don't get that. Um, as far as I know, the things that I read, I don't necessarily see anywhere else where that is the case. So I can't tell you for sure. And so here's where it gets down to getting ugly for us. The commentators are all over the map. And what does that tell us? No one really knows, do they? No one really knows. I can't tell you how many times I went back and forth this week as I studied this passage. Oh, man, she's really messed up here. She's, I mean, it, 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 at best, she's just being unwise. At most, she's, she's really pushing the issue. And then there are other times when I'm thinking about it, well, maybe there's just something I don't get here. I don't know. I went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I can tell you this. I can tell you this right now. I, w- I would never try this at home. Unless my daughters come back from college and try to live with me, then I might try. I'm totally kidding. Totally kidding. Me, I'm totally kidding. Whatever's behind this issue, Naomi's motives are are hidden on that level. They're not hidden on the level of she cares for Ruth. But they're hidden on that level. And it's clear, here's other things, other little nuggets of truth that are in here. What's interesting is, is that uh, Naomi, as, as well as the narrator, the narrator just makes this clear through the passage that Ruth was a woman of noble character. And, and, and Boaz was too. And we'll see that a little later as well. So you just wonder, does she just trust this? Does she just, you know, maybe this is not the most wise thing to do, but is she just trusting in it? What is, I, I don't know. But what I do know is this. In verse 5, par with Ruth's character, she replies, all that you say I will do. Interesting, isn't it? All you, all you say I will do. So let's try to glean some truth for us just a little bit from this passage. This is, I'm just going to keep it simple. First of all, I've already said this, but I'll say it again. We know that Naomi cared deeply for, for Ruth. She genuinely wanted this rest and security and benefits found in marriage um, for this young woman that she loved so dearly. Don't doubt her love for Ruth and her desire for the best for her. So I don't think there's any kind of shenanigans going on here. I just think this was the plan. 
And even though you almost, I wonder sometimes as I looked at it, I wondered sometimes if the narrator is not trying to push the envelope there with all those words that can have double meanings just to get our senses heightened to what's going to happen and unfold. Because as you're reading it, you want to go, what's going to happen? What's, how's this girl going to do this? And what's this going to look like? Is, it, it, will he make advances to her? Will, will, will she you know, decide not to do it? Will she just run off back to Moab? What, what's going to happen? But don't ever miss the mark that Naomi cared deeply for Ruth. Secondly, we also know that Naomi saw character in Ruth and Boaz the same character as the narrator has laid out for us. I've said that as well already. So, you know, there's trust here. The story presses the idea that she believes that she sees the hand of God in this providence. And then the instructions um, thrust things uh, into motion, and she trusts in her heart some way that, that this will go well. That their riskiness will work out in light of the character of these two people. So, even as we try to discern that, we always have before us the, the picture of the character of these two. It, it's beautiful. They're not perfect people, and that's not the point in any, time, any place in Scripture. There are no perfect people in Scripture. As a matter of fact, that may be another issue that we see here. And even with all of Naomi's coming back to the Lord and all these things, she's being unwise. You see what I'm saying? I mean, you could go a thousand different directions, but what we do know is that the character of Ruth and Boaz are stellar. Just stellar. And so even as we read, we're thinking, this is going to work out. This is going to go somewhere. Thirdly, uh, beware of confusing trust in God with fatalism. Beware of confusing trust in God with fatalism. In light of this providential opportunity, Naomi acts. And whatever you think of her instruction, she is not just sitting around waiting on God to do something. You know, she's not you know, singing que sera, sera. She's not singing... Akuna Matata, you know? She's not just hanging around. She trusts the Lord. She sees the actions. Think about it from her perspective. She sees the actions of Boaz. She sees the, his loving kindness, his hassid being poured out uh, to Ruth. And again, there's this aspect of this is something more than just being nice. You know, it's, you know, she's a mother. You know, she's a Jewish lady. You can imagine her sitting around going, you know, that Boaz, he's a nice guy, you know. Yeah, have you thought about Boaz? You know, like it reminds me of Fiddler on the Roof, you know. So much I can hear those women going on about this. And she's maybe talking to other women. And they're, you know, talking about everything that's going on. And so they all see it and they're all like, we just need to push them in the right direction. I don't know. But we need to be aware of confusing trust in God with fatalism. Um, that brings me to my next point here. It's 4 or D on your list. I think it's D. 
Regardless of how we interpret these instructions, we must use wisdom when taking initiative. Okay? Now, let me say it this way. Some, and I'm telling you, some commentators rip Naomi to shreds. This is awful. She's unwise. Some say this was a wise move. And like I said, I'm like, that's just craziness. I, I, thanks for helping me here. Again, I can make a list of each argument. It's a very complicated issue, but whatever the case, notice it turned out for good. On our end, though, on our end, we must always use the biblical wisdom we have. We always have to use the biblical wisdom we have. What do we have that Naomi didn't have at that time? Well, you know, we have the history of, of Samuel, um, David, um, Solomon, and the other kings. We have the prophets. We have the gospels. We have the letters from Paul. We have the book of Proverbs. Now, there could have been some Proverbs possibly out there, but it, you know, Solomon put those together. So if they were, they were things that Solomon created later. We have all that, right? And so as we read the Scriptures, we need to hear the weight of it. Uh, recently, I've been going through the Proverbs very, very slowly because a couple weeks ago I had a situation I had to deal with um, in, in Presbytery, and I called one of my friends, and he quoted this proverb to me, and I'm like, oh, I just need to dig into the Proverbs a little bit more because that would have really helped me out at the time. And, and so I say that to say that um, memorize, work through, read through the Proverbs. Understand the kingdom values that the Lord is calling us to live out before the watching world. Um, the, Proverbs 21.2 says this, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord weighs the heart. And so as you wrestle with it, regardless of, of how we interpret this, we are called to live wisely. We are called to live with the Word of God on our hearts and minds and, and walk in that way. So that, And again, I said I wouldn't, I wouldn't try this at home. Neither should you, young people. And what cultural issues might we jump into that would... That would uh, presume a risque situation in order to get a husband or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a wife. You see what I'm saying? Today, in, let me put it this way. In today's world, what I see is people saying, I'm a Christian. But not understanding that to be a Christian is to be a disciple of Christ. It's not just a, I prayed a prayer to get out of hell, and now I can do what I want to do. That's not how it works. What the Lord tells us, and what the Proverbs tells us, the, the first part of Proverbs is this. Wisdom is good. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. How do you fear the Lord? How do you know what wisdom He gives you if you don't seek it out? 
if you don't desire it. I think I might have said this before, but it's like this, you know, like when you share the gospel with people, people usually say, well, I just don't like being lorded over. I don't like all the rules. Which ones? Do you really like a lot of people? Do you like to deceive people? Do you like people to deceive you? Really, is that the commandment you don't like? Um, might it be stealing? You know? You like to steal from people? I always want to do that. Really? Would you like for me to steal from you? Almost 100% of the time, it's none of those. It's all about sex. I do not want him to tell me what to do about my sexuality. Think about it. We wouldn't want to steal from people or be stolen from. Maybe we would want to steal from people, but we don't want to be stolen from. Um, maybe we don't mind lying to people, but we sure don't want to be lied to. Those issues of sexuality, those issues of morality that the Bible lays out for us are for a purpose. They protect one another. They keep us from taking advantage of one another. Of being hateful and mean and evil to one another. And yet we say, I don't want any of that. Ultimately though, it always boils down to, I just don't want God to tell me what to do. And I, I get that. I get that. But these morals that He has set up for us as His people, as His people, we ought to embrace. We ought to step toward. We ought to say, yes, Lord. Yes. So use the wisdom that He has given us to live as we take initiative. And let me tell you, let me add something else to that too. Not to add to Scripture, but to add to what the Scripture says. And that is, you have people around you. you know, for young people, you have your parents. You have AJ. You actually have me, whether you like it or not. You have people around you that can give you great wisdom and help you see clearly. Use that. Use that. Finally, E, understand that the Scripture is full of mystery. We're not going to be able to grasp everything because everything is not revealed to us. Again, it's revealed to us that she has a desire to care for her daughter-in-law. That motive that she has in carrying out this plan is hidden from us. Listen to what Henry de LeBlanc said. Interestingly said, he said this, Scripture is like the world, undecipherable in its fullness and in the multiplicity of its meanings. It is a deep forest with innumerable branches, an infinite forest of meanings. The more involved one gets in it, the more one discovers that it is impossible to explore it right to its end. It is a table arranged by wisdom, laden with food, where unfathomable divinity of the Savior is itself offered as nourishment to all. 
treasure of the Holy Spirit, whose riches are as infinite as Himself, truth labyrinth, deep havens, unfathomable abyss, vast sea, where there is endless voyaging with all sails set, an ocean of mystery. The most incredible thing about this passage and everything that's happened before from chapter 1 is this. That God took all this. You can even call it a mess. The mess that Elimelech wrongly took his family into Moab. The mess of his sons actually wrongly marrying a Moabitess. And yet Ruth here turns to Jesus And she is part of God's overall story of grace and redemption. Furthermore, through the Scripture in our lives, even though they're mysterious, what is not a mystery to us is Jesus. He has been revealed to us in fullness. I mean, think about it. God is... And flesh became a man. So once we have faith in Him, we have trust in Him, we give our allegiance to Him, His grace leads us through the mess that is our lives. And if we've said this before, and we'll say it again, has He not promised? All things will work for good to those who trust Me and have their faith in Me. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this gracious word to us. It's, it's hard. Lord, I pray that it would be a, a piece of your word that we would chew on all week long and try to discover new nuances and new facts and new uh, ways that we could view this and understand this for our own hearts. I'm sure as we have read the scripture even out here among your people, there are many other, other truths that we can glean from this and understand. Father, what we ultimately see is that you're good. And you'll work in our messes. Because you're the one that is so caring for us. You love us, Lord, and even in our mistakes, even in our messes, you're providentially guiding and directing for your good and your glory. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.